This is surely one of the most profoundly poetic beginnings to any concerto in the repertory. cruel to stop it like that. The opening of Sibelius's Violin Concerto, as I'm sure many of you are aware. A special thanks today to our soloist, Wilde Frank, and of course to the BBC Symphony Orchestra and our conductor, Pietri Inkenen. It's one of those musical ideas, isn't it, that sounds as if it's almost a, well, a gift from God, or at least a gift of nature. The two are almost interchangeable, I think, in Sibelius's world. First of all, we have one of those wonderful, quietly pulsating nature sounds that are so typical of Sibelius on the orchestral violins. Now, how does Sibelius get that lovely pulsating effect? Actually, it's by a rather ingenious technique that he made very much his own, a kind of overlapping. The technical term is cross-hatching. What he does is he has the first violins play this. But at the same time, the second violins are playing the same, but in the opposite direction. They move down when the first move up, and vice versa. You put those two together, and you have a single chord that sounds as though it's softly throbbing with life. so soft and yet such a sense of potential energy in that sound. At the same time, the orchestral violins are all muted. That kind of half-light effect, which is so typical of the light in far northern latitudes, the Finland of Sibelius. It's the kind of country where you get long twilights, sustained mist, etc. And that's that, that sound, I think, very much there that Sibelius creates with those muted violins. But it also means that when the soloist herself emerges from this sound, she plays without the mute, so that she actually stands distinct from this more subdued sound on the orchestral violins. It's as though we have one solo voice emerging from many solo violin voices in the orchestral texture, but at the same time, she's quite distinct. She's, as it were, the principal singing voice of nature. It's like the voice of the cor anglais emerging from dark, cloudy string chords at the beginning of the Swan of Tuonela. 
the corps anglais, very clearly the swan. The violin here, what does the violin stand for? Well, maybe she's one of those Nordic water nymphs or tree spirits that Sibelius loved creating in his music. Or maybe she's something less specific, yet clearly some kind of voice of nature seems to be being depicted here. Well, it's lovely to imagine, isn't it, Sibelius writing that straight down as he walked beside a Finnish lake or amongst the pine trees. It seems almost to be a perfect illustration of that remark that Elgar made. Elgar, another composer who loved to take his ideas from nature. Elgar said, there's music in the air. The world is full of it. All you have to do is simply take as much as you require. But it's not that simple. It never was that simple with Sibelius. There are two quite distinct versions of the violin concerto. They're both very different, and in themselves, they attest to an absolutely monumental struggle, not just with the musical ideas, but within himself too. And very soon, despite that kind of melancholy serenity of the opening, you get a real sense of an emotional struggle in this concerto. Immediately after that ethereal opening, we get dark sounds from low clarinets and bassoons, which is a very typical color for Sibelius. And the relationship between the soloist and the orchestra becomes, well, I think it might be fair to say, it becomes more fraught. It's a real change of character, isn't it? We started with something so hushed, so serene, like a distillation of the spirit of nature. And we've ended up with violin writing that is wildly agitated, almost frantic passage work at the end, huge leaps from right on the bottom G string to the heights of the E string. It's not quite unprecedented, though, in the concerto. It's not that one moves suddenly from one kind of emotional world to the other. Even in that long opening melody, there are hints already of the struggle that's beginning, of the effort that's required. Even, as I said, in that opening long violin solo, you can hear the struggle beginning even there. two sides to this concerto already, that serene yet sad voice of nature at the beginning, and that very human, that all-too-human agitated effort 
prefigured in that long opening melody and then exploding at the first climax. It's all there. So why was this concerto such a struggle for Sibelius? Why did it take two major efforts to get it right? Well, one reason is certainly that this was an emotionally very sensitive territory for Sibelius, even dangerous territory. The idea to write a violin concerto had been planted in his mind in 1900 by a hugely important friend of the composer, a man called Axel Karpelan. Who was Karpelan? Well, he had a reputation by the end of the 19th century as a kind of odd loner, a rich dilettante, a hypochondriac who'd done very little with his life. Apparently, when he was younger, he wanted to devote himself to the violin, but on meeting strong parental opposition, he'd thrown what you might say was the ultimate teenage wobbly, smashed his violin to pieces, and threw them rather dramatically into a river. In 1900, he was already 40 and had apparently done nothing with his talents, but then he discovered Sibelius. And he seems to have devoted his life to encouraging and prompting this composer. There's a remarkable letter that Carpelan wrote to Sibelius in 1900, the first of several in which Carpelan gave Sibelius the list of things that he felt he must do. He must write a new symphony. He must write a tone poem called Finlandia. He should go to Italy. He should consider writing music for Shakespeare's The Tempest and a tone poem about the northern forests and a violin concerto. And it's fascinating to note that Sibelius did absolutely all of these things. He even carried on with these projects that Carpelin had set him after Carpelin died in 1919. That was a hugely lamented loss. But the violin concerto was a source of special struggle for Sibelius because, like Carpelin, Sibelius's relationship with the violin was a source of great and more lasting pain. When he was writing the Violin Concerto in 1903, well, this was one of Sibelius's worst periods when it came to dependency on alcohol. In fact, I've been told by several people in Finland that Sibelius sketched the slow movement of this concerto during a three-day hangover, which gives you some idea of how heavily he'd been drinking before. Why? Well, because this was such a personal issue for him. There had been a time when Sibelius was a student at the Helsinki Conservatory when it had looked as though a career as a violin virtuoso was a real possibility for him. In fact, his teacher at the university, Mitrofan Vasilievich, had actually pronounced him a genius. But Sibelius's confidence was always a problem. He suffered terribly from nerves, and as so often when you suffer from nerves, his technique faltered as well. Eventually, he realized he just couldn't do it. It wasn't that he couldn't play the violin, it was something about getting up on the stage, apparently, in front of people that was just too much for him. He thought of giving up music altogether, and perhaps I shall live the life of an idiot, for which I'm well qualified, he wrote. But instead, he settled for being a composer. That, fascinatingly enough, was the second best option for Sibelius. We may not think so, but it was for him. And it certainly wasn't a decision that he took without lasting regret. That may seem incredible, but I was just looking at some of Sibelius's diaries the other day at the time he was beginning work on his fifth symphony. This is 1915. They're full of tortured jottings, as so often in Sibelius's diaries. And there's one particularly sad little entry. Dreamt I was 12 years old and a virtuoso. Now, for me, if I'd written Sibelius's fifth symphony, I'd die happy. But all Sibelius can think of is what a failure he is because he never made it as a violin virtuoso. 
I'm not the only one by a long way to wonder if the often intensely sad, nostalgic mood of this concerto springs in part from that sense of failure, of loss. You can certainly hear something like that, I think, in the tune, the wonderful tune of the slow movement. The bit that always gets me in that passage, I'd just like to pick it out for a moment. The, the moment that really says regret to me, I'm talking about my reaction here, if you feel differently, fair enough, but it's that little sort of moment of a kind of semi-whispered broken aside. The flow of the melody stops for a moment, almost as though it's too painful to go on. Sibelius whispers that little phrase over and over again, and then it resumes stoically and brings itself to rest.
Now, a lot of what I've said so far has been subjectively coloured, and of course you can't avoid that when you're talking about music. But actually there are comments that you can make that are maybe a little bit more objective about the element of difficulty, of struggle in this concerto. Sometimes the very difficulty of the solo writing itself, the almost painful effort that Sibelius requires, seems to spring straight out of Sibelius's own personal pain. The beginning of the first movement cadenza, it's one of the most ferociously challenging cadenzas in the repertoire. And it begins with a heart-stopping leap from the bottom string right up into the stratospheric heights of the top string. Well, it may not be the biggest technical obstacle in the concerto, and yet it almost has a character of desperation about it. Almost sounds for a moment as though Sibelius is trying to rend the violin asunder, perhaps like poor Axel Karpelen when his own violinist plans failed so terribly. Extraordinary writing. And then there's another passage. It may not sound immediately like one of the most challenging moments in this terrifically demanding concerto. The difficulty is certainly apparent, I think, in the emotional character of this passage. Let's hear it with everyone together first. Now, Sibelius sets a unique rhythmic challenge here. It's actually one of the few passages he made more difficult when he revised the violin concerto in 1905. In most cases, he actually made it slightly easier than the original, which must give you some idea of what that's like to play. In the later symphonies, and in the tone poems especially, Sibelius likes to create a special kind of effect, which is the effect of strands in a musical texture moving at different speeds. Imagine actually standing on a bridge and looking at a river. A river doesn't move at the same speed, does it? All the water like a, a carpet unrolling. You can see different parts of it moving at slightly different speeds and you get cross currents and little passages that sometimes where the water doubles back on itself. That's the sort of effect Sibelius loves creating in his music. In fact, he compared some of his works to rivers in this respect. Usually, though, what he asks is for different sections of the orchestra, different colours, to pursue these different kind of current courses. Here... The violinist has to do two-thirds of the work herself. First of all, Vilda, I'd like you to play the melody line on the top. We've got a simple syncopated four-laid pattern, a lamenting pattern, in four beats to a bar. But at the same time, on lower strings... She has this figure, which is in six beats to the bar. Well, if you put those together, 
it's hugely difficult. It's a bit like patting your head and stroking your stomach in opposite directions at the same time. Sorry, Vilda, but would you mind having a go for us now? managed to make it sound a lot less hard than it actually is. <laughs> Quite an achievement. But to make things even harder, Sibelius has the orchestral strings playing another syncopated rhythm twice as fast as the soloist's top line. So while she's trying to concentrate on those two conflicting rhythms, two different pulses going at the same time, the strings are playing another pulse at a faster tempo, as it sounds. This is what they're playing. I'm wondering if Sibelius wasn't wanting something like that. Sometimes you get the impression with Chopin, for instance, that when he writes something in his piano music that's almost painful for the fingers to play, he wants that pain to be translated into musical expressive terms so he can hear and feel it too. I don't want to make it sound as though I'm trying to talk like an expensive Californian therapist, but you can't help feeling that Sibelius wants us to hear some of his pain too, and maybe the soloists as well. But all this talk about pain and challenge and technical difficulty is a good point, I think, actually to bring Vilda in on the discussion today. Would you mind coming over and joining me for a second? It, it would be lovely to get a performer's eye view or ear view of this piece. I mean, can you tell from the way Sibelius writes from the violin that he was or might have been a fine violinist himself? Is it, is it obvious that he understands the violin? Absolutely. I mean... He was a very accomplished violinist, and he, you know, he wrote so many pieces of violin and uh, of such a level, which is so virtuoso. And uh, if you take his humoresques, for example, um, he also wrote a suite for violin and piano, which is extremely virtuoso music. And um, it's understandable that he was daunted by performing it himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I think he was a. a very, very fine player, and it was more about thinking too much. I think maybe he thought a little bit too much as well. <laughs> oh, well, I, this, this, it's been suggested to me that this is one reason why he needed drink so much. It was the only way he could actually turn off the critic in his own head. And one of the reasons why he was largely silent as a composer from the last 30 years, it seems, is that his wife, who put up with this for years and years and years, finally had enough and said, you've got to sort your drinking out. And uh, he tried, but... In fact, without alcohol to sedate that critic in his head, he was far too self-critical, and it almost certainly destroyed his Eighth Symphony, which is a tragic and terrible thought. But actually, going back to this concerto, and thank God he didn't destroy this, what for you, I've been talking a bit about some of the difficulties in this piece, what for you is the most difficult thing about this concerto? Is it a technical thing, or is it an emotional thing, more an emotional thing? I think, most of all, it's a very heavy emotional piece. It's extremely dramatic. It has huge emotional contrasts between complete pianissimo until a very, very impassionate fortissimo. And, uh, and he really had the whole spectrum. He, he had such a great ambition. I mean, it's, it's a really, it's a very ambitious piece. It's almost like a, I feel I'm singing when I'm playing it because it's beyond fingerings and bowings. It's more about, really, stomach, really. <laughs> and it's, all, it's about the violinist he might have been or would have wanted to have been, do you think, in a way that... The, I think he absolutely was this violinist. And mm. um, I think by composing, I think he accomplished so much more than 
any soloist can dream of. You know? And yet he didn't see it that way. Isn't that extraordinary? Some of us are not very good at just judging what we are best at, maybe. Maybe we're not the best people to say, certainly in the case of composers like Sibelius. Thank you for talking to us, Vilda. Thank you. What about the question of the relationship between the solo and the orchestra? We heard at the beginning how the violin seemed to be born from those nature sounds played by her orchestral brothers and sisters, how she acquires a kind of independent life as nature's singer, and then how very quickly at the beginning of the first movement the relationship between the solo violin and the orchestra becomes much more stormy and contentious. In fact, Sibelius was very clear in what he said and wrote, that he didn't want to compose a symphony for violin and orchestra, as some have said Brahms does in his violin concerto. In fact, I was very surprised and rather struck to discover that Sibelius said he didn't know the Brahms and didn't get to know the Brahms concerto until after he'd completed the first version of the violin concerto in 1903. Apparently, he'd been a bit stung by criticisms that the first version of the concerto was sprawling or loose in construction, and so he decided to tighten it up a bit. But the relationship between the solo and the orchestra, I think, becomes clearer in the revised version. But at the same time, there's also a paradoxical element in it, too. Sometimes in this concerto, you can hear Sibelius, the master of symphonic writing. In the first movement exposition section, that's the section where Sibelius sets out his main themes, you hear the third main theme and working out given over entirely to the orchestra. It's one of those masterly passages that Sibelius seemed to create so uniquely that seems to be built up entirely in one chord. In fact, you could play one bass note all the way through this passage, uh, what uh, in technical terms you'd call a pedal note, so-called, because it's like an organist sticking his foot down on one deep note on the pedal and holding it. You could do that all the way through this passage, however active and furious the writing is above it.
sounds and colours that could only be Sibelius. And that brings the first section, the exposition section of the first movement, to a very clear and seemingly tragic end. But now it becomes clear why Sibelius has given the whole of this part of the movement to the orchestra alone. Because what follows now is actually, in textbook terms, rather difficult to describe. If this were a properly well-behaved first movement of a concerto, what we'd now have would be called the development section, which is often a big dramatic dialogue or conflict or contrast between the soloist and the orchestra. But Sibelius has a completely revolutionary idea, which is make his development a huge solo cadenza. In other words, give it over almost entirely to the violin alone. It begins with that desperate passage that we heard a little bit earlier where Sibelius seems to want to tear the heart out of the violin with those wild leaps and furious cascading figures. We'll take it from just after that first outburst. There's one angry protest from the orchestra and then the violinist is on her own for this crucial part of the drama of the first movement. There's plenty more spectacular unaccompanied solo music following that, but we'll leave that for the performance in a moment or two. Now, it seems that Sibelius was partly inspired by the examples of the concertos of Mendelssohn and Tchaikovsky, where the solo cadenza introduces the recapitulation, the place where the first theme returns, and the themes, or indeed all the themes, return in order. But actually, what we've seen here is that the whole of the development section has been given over to this dramatic cadenza with that just one angry little outburst from the orchestra there. And when it turns to the moment where the actual first theme comes back, Sibelius also intensifies this and does something rather original. First of all, the orchestra seems to want to lead with the theme. In fact, we'll hear a low bassoon, a lugubrious low bassoon, starts the violin's theme from the beginning of the concerto. But in contrast to the Mendelssohn, Sibelius has the solo violin take the melody back, almost seize the melody back from the orchestra and reclaim it in the process, bringing the music back from a slightly remote key to the home key. And we arrive at exactly the same culminating point as the first time we heard this melody, only now it's heightened because of what we've gone through, the transformation process that happened. We'll take it from the end of the cadenza so you can hear how this happens.
and back to that high note where we stopped right at the beginning of the program. But what the soloist has done here, it's very important, the soloist has reclaimed the theme from the orchestra and brought us back to the home key and almost to where we started. It's very important, this, because although the orchestral writing in this concerto is very interesting and dramatic in itself, the orchestra is certainly far more than an accompanist. This is not a symphony by violin. It's a violin concerto. The orchestra can play a symphonic role, but the solo is the leader. She's the one who really directs the order of the drama here. And you can sense a similar kind of struggle and contention going right the way through this concerto. In fact, actually, the one possible etymology of the term concerto is from the Italian concertare, to strive. If so, then Sibelius has really got to the essence of that in this work. It's striking, particularly in a work which began apparently without any obvious striving in the nature, the soloist born from the nature sounds of the orchestra, womb sounds. And it's as she, as it were, starts to become an individual in her own right that the trouble really starts and the relationship with the parent, with the orchestra, becomes more fraught. How like life, you might say. But we haven't heard anything yet from the finale. There is a method to this because this is where the relationship between the orchestra and the soloist starts to change, and the nature of the violin writing changes too. This is the real fast movement of the concerto. In the first movement, we have bursts of fast music, but an awful lot of it is very slow and still and reflective. In fact, the conflict between those two types of music, one very active and driven, and the other very contemplative, is one of the things that creates the magnificent sense of tension in the first movement. But in the finale, it's clear from the start that the relationship has changed. Sibelius takes his starting point from that, that, do you remember that syncopated rhythm in the background to Wilder's amazingly complicated rhythm games? Uh, let's just hear it again. It's typical of Sibelius that he has the ability to take what seems like a tiny little accompanimental detail and transform it into something dynamic and important in the finale. Those syncopations at the beginning of the finale become these extraordinary driving alternations between timpani and strings. And hardly has this been set in motion before the soloist plunges into the current, you can imagine, and swims energetically with the current of the orchestra.
so many different kinds of virtuoso fireworks going on there, skyrockets, starbursts, fistfuls of chords flying up and down the violin, scales that dart upwards in thirds and then plunge vertiginously down again. Well, the violin part's still heroically challenging, as it has been in the other two movements, but it's not that kind of flat-out contention, that strife that you get in the first movement and even in the slow movement. Now I think the relationship's changed. If you imagine that the orchestra is like the white water here, the river plunging forward, and the violinist is like a, a swimmer who, who leaps into this water and swims with it, it's the kind of current that you can imagine, the sort of force that could kill the swimmer if he or she isn't careful. But it's also tremendously exhilarating to master such an elemental force. When the second theme of the movement comes back, the violin really rides the rapids, another of those huge leaps at the beginning. Then we hear a sound we haven't heard anything of yet, which is high, gleaming violin harmonics, a very, very bright sound, very different from the often very somber or dark, richly dark sounds of the previous two movements. To me, even though so much of this movement is dark and minor key, this really sounds like a kind of grim exultation. <laughs> right through to the conclusion. Uh, for me, the ending of this concerto is absolutely extraordinary. The violin has ridden the storm, the swimmer has thwart his way through this potentially deadly current and now sings out in a kind of defiant triumph. It's a typically curt ending. Sibelius actually very rarely spins his endings out. Now, I have a Finnish friend who tells me that this is very typical of Finns who never use more words than they need to. But it's often striking how... I don't know what Pietri thinks of that. I can see him smiling. Yes, I think he agrees. <laughs> It's a very typical ending for Sibelius. What we get is just basically three sharp orchestral staccato chords through which the soloist soars magnificently. But we really get the message. There's a feeling that nature has been mastered, the composer has fought his own inner demons and emerged, rather like the heroic figure in that famous Victorian poem by W.E. Henley. He emerges bloody but unbowed. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's what this music seems to say to me.
triumph, certainly, yes. <laughs> it's, it's difficult not to, isn't it, when you hear playing like that? I, it's, it's not just a triumph for the soloist, though. There is something unmistakably triumphant about that ending of the concerto, isn't there? Well, that may have been pure fantasy on Sibelius's part. As I've said, his struggle to complete the concerto cost him, and especially his wife, Heino, a great deal of pain. As I said, his alcoholism was worse than usual during this period, and at times it must have seemed to those around him as though Sibelius was doing everything possible to avoid writing the concerto. In fact, he, on several occasions, he disappeared on drinking binges that lasted for days. In fact, I've read on one occasion, Aino actually had to plead with a friend to drag Sibelius out of a notorious gentleman-only Helsinki watering hole, drag him back to the desk, prop him up, and hope against hope that he'd actually find the energy and the resources to finish the concerto. But in the end, he did finish the violin concerto. Maybe this is his elegy for the virtuoso he might have been, and maybe it is a work that charts on some level his own struggle to come to terms with that sense of thwarted ambition. Perhaps the music is more heroic than Sibelius was in his own life. Well, he wouldn't be the first artist to be like that, would he? I'm reminded of the poet W.B. Yeats, who said, the intellect of man is forced to choose perfection of the life or of the work. I don't think there was much doubt which perfection Sibelius had chosen. And yet he did manage to perfect this work with this immense struggle. And we can all profit, I think, from engaging in that exhilarating, death-defying struggle with him. More importantly, and this is something that often strikes me about Sibelius, is that he was able to turn triumph from failure. He often did that in his work and in his life. There were big failed projects like a huge religious cantata, Mariata, that he was considering writing at the beginning of the 20th century. He didn't complete it. This was a terrible loss to him. And yet out of it came the seeds for several major new works. One of his greatest tone poems, Pochola's Daughter, ends with the humiliating failure of the hero. And yet from that depiction grow the terrific achievements of his last four symphonies. And maybe it was from his failure as a violinist that Sibelius was able to create the triumph that is this concerto. Well, let's be thankful in that case that Sibelius did fail to become a violinist because we'd probably never have heard him where we can hear and enjoy this magnificent concerto. So here now, let's hear a complete performance of Sibelius's violin concerto in D minor, the BBC Symphony Orchestra, Leader Anna Coleman is conducted by Pietri Inkinen and the soloist is Wilder Frang. <laughs> 